I don't know if you have been following the news at all uh, for the past week. If you were here on Palm Sunday, you may remember that we prayed for Coptic Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ in Alexandria, Egypt, because their church was bombed on Palm Sunday. And uh, have you seen the video that has come out um, with the Egyptian talk show host? It is Stunning. You, you just, you need to Google it. I'll, I'll just, let me tell you briefly, it's, I, I can't remember his name. I didn't write it down, but evidently he's, he's a fairly prominent Egyptian journalist and, and, and TV host, television host, and, and his, his reaction to, to watching one of his colleagues interview the widow of a security guard who was killed in that blast. Um, some think that he was probably the first one killed because I guess that the backstory is that that the suicide bomber came in and he was somehow directed away from the main entrance of the church, so he couldn't go into the sanctuary itself. And and evidently his actions probably saved uh, dozens of people who were inside. Anyway. This Egyptian journalist talk show host is, is watching an interview that one of his colleagues is having with the widow of that guard. And he hears her say these words, I'm not angry at the one who did this. I'm telling him, may God forgive you and we also forgive you. Now the guy's dead He can't hear the words of forgiveness coming from this widow's mouth, but the whole world that's watching this video hears this proclamation. Believe me, we forgive you. And then she says, you put my husband in a place that I couldn't have dreamed of. And his response is stunned silence. 10 seconds, which is an eternity on the airwaves. He, he just, you can just watch him sitting there looking at that, saying nothing. And finally, he manages to stammer out some words about how the Coptic Christians have been bearing atrocities in Egypt for over 100 years. And then he says this, how great is this forgiveness you have? And his voice cracked as he said, I could never say this. But this is their faith and religious conviction. These people, he calls them cops, C-O-P-T. These cops have so much forgiveness. They are made from a different substance. Praise be to God. You've got to watch that video. It will just give you chills. These people are made from a different substance. Absolutely. The Apostle Paul told the Corinthians, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Glory be to God that some of his people in Alexandria are are living into that and the world is privy to that that life and that response. 
Some of you know the name Paul Turnier, Swiss physician and counselor, uh, wrote a lot of, of great uh, challenging books in terms of the Christian life. He said, you know, Christianity is not one ideology over other or against other ideologies. He says, it is a life inspired by the Holy Spirit. Its victories are nothing but victories over itself, not over others. It, it propagates itself through humility and self-examination, not through triumphs. I have thought often this week of our Sunday celebration, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Last week, we, we joined with believers all around the world and uh, declared that statement, Christ is risen, and you said, yeah. And there's something inside of me that just screams, yes, when I hear the words of that, that dear, godly Egyptian widow. She gets it. God's grace actively working in her and she is finding victory in Christ over the old sinful nature that would have her be angry and and unforgiving and bitter and wanting revenge. But instead, she forgives. And she verbalizes something that sounds a whole lot like Jesus. My brothers and sisters, I think I think that is what Christ is risen truly means. He is risen. And those who put their faith in him, into those he sends his spirit. He sends his spirit into their lives and as they surrender to the leading and the conviction and the control and the teaching and the power of the Spirit in their lives, they begin to exhibit a character and to live out qualities that are the characters and qualities of Jesus. I love these words of Eugene Peterson. He asked the question, he says, so how did God bring our Savior into our history? We have the story of what he could have done, but he didn't. God could have sent his son into the world to turn all the stones into bread and solve the hunger problems worldwide. He didn't do it. He could have sent Jesus on tour through Palestine, filling in turn the seven grand amphitheaters and hippodromes built by Herod, and amazing everyone with supernatural circus performances, impressing the crowds with super God in action. He didn't do that. He could have set Jesus up to take over governing the world. No more war, no more injustice, no more crime. He didn't do that either. He says, now we also have the story of what God, in fact, did do. He gave us the miracle of Jesus. But a miracle in the form of a helpless infant born in poverty in a dangerous place with neither understanding nor support from political, religious, or cultural surroundings. And Jesus, says Peterson, never left 
that world he'd been born into, that world of vulnerability, marginality, and poverty. I thought, you know, just coming through Holy Week and Resurrection Sunday, we, we might want to add to Peterson's description of Jesus as he says, born into a world of vulnerability, marginality, and poverty. We might want to add that, that he lived in that world and he died in that world, but, but it wasn't a quiet, peaceful death where he was honored and lovingly eulogized. No, we were reminded that he died like a criminal on a Roman cross, stripped pretty much naked, hanging there before everyone after he had been beaten and whipped and ridiculed, deserted by most of the people who cared about him. And then his body was laid in a borrowed tomb. And then he rose from the dead. And then he rose from the dead. Oh yeah, did I fail to mention? Yeah, he rose from the dead. But even that, think about it. We celebrated that last week. Whoop-de-doo and people all over the world celebrating Christ is risen. But in the gospel story, if we're honest, there's not a big to-do made over it. There's not a lot of fanfare. I mean, apart from the angel of the tomb, there was, there was no great announcement. There was no public proclamation, Christ is risen to the Roman Empire. Oh, there was an earthquake. But that's about as exciting as things got. Instead, Jesus rose from the dead and then the gospel writers give us these little vignettes of his appearances And then his disappearances, and then he appears again, here and there, quietly, to his followers. I think one of the most stunning truths of the Christian faith, no, I think it's the stunning truth, about this faith that we embrace as followers of Christ is that We believe in a God whose thinking and character and and resulting actions of his character, those actions are not only contrary to those of of humanity and, and the prevailing attitudes and actions of the world in which we live, they are they're often, in fact, maybe maybe all the time, they are outrageously absurd. And, and opposed to those who don't share them. Why would you forgive someone who's blown your husband to bits and leaves you a widow and a single parent? Why pray for your enemies and desire for them God's forgiveness? You know why? Because Christ is risen. Because Christ is risen. That's why it occurred to me this week that as wonderful as those words are, they're just words. Anyone can say 
Christ is risen. Whether they believe it or not. But. Big but. When those words are lived out in the power of the Spirit of God through the lives of those who believe those words, who stake their lives on those words, those simple words become a life-changing force. Did you know that we're officially in what the church calendar calls Eastertide? Began last Sunday, as you would suspect, and it lasts for 50 days until we get to Pentecost Sunday on June 4th. So in this season of celebrating Christ is risen, I just can't help but think it's also a perfect time to consider the challenge of living into that truth. Christ is risen. I don't want people to look at my life and say, so what? Christ is risen. Something very different about those who embrace that and believe that and live into that. My hope is that we can take a few Sundays together and and begin to to think again about our actions, our, our daily actions, from a perspective of of a text in Romans that may challenge us to sort of realign the actions of our lives, the attitudes of our lives, with those words, Christ is risen. <clears throat> so, that, so that there is power that comes from the lives of us, you and me, who, who proclaim and, and believe that Christ is risen. So I've I've chosen a a very familiar text. It's it's one that you have probably studied many times. It's one that we've looked at together in the past. It's from Romans 12. It's going to be our primary text. We're going to read it together in just a few minutes, but I want to give you just a little bit of context, a reminder. You may know this, but I think it's so important for the way that we, we kind of jump in to chapter 12. First 11 chapters of Romans, if you've spent any time reading Romans, you know that it's a, it's a theological treatise. And, and it is all about the grace of God. I mean, Paul is just so jazzed about the grace of God. And he, he wrote the letter to the church in Rome. It was filled with, with Jews and Gentiles. And so he spends considerable time in his letter explaining that, that Jews and Gentiles alike are sinners. He talks about the advantages that there is to being a Jew and, and having knowledge of God through the law and through the, the accounts and, and the history of, of the Jewish people in the Old Testament. But basically, he comes back to, we're all in the same boat, folks. Jews and Gentiles alike, we are all sinners. Everyone, regardless of where they've come from, who they are, how they've lived their lives, they are in need of salvation. And Paul says that salvation is provided through the grace of God as a result of Jesus and his redemptive work on the cross. 
just summed up the book of Romans for you. That's it. Just like that. He also makes it abundantly clear. I love this. And if you've read Romans, you know Paul just stands on this. Salvation is not attained by works. It is only attained by faith. The word is believing in the Greek. Only by faith, by believing in what God has done for sinful people through Jesus' death and resurrection. And for those who believe, Paul says God has set them free from what is a law of sin and death that runs through all of humanity. They are set free. They are no longer in bondage to sin. But they have been set free to live their lives with what he says is an obligation to something, someone else. That's all part of the first 11 chapters. It's hugely important in Paul's thinking and and we need to, to have that fresh in our minds as we begin chapter 12. Because then he turns after all of this for 11 chapters and basically offers what he sees as the only reasonable way that a believer, someone who embraces this, has been a recipient of the transforming grace of God through Christ, the only reasonable way that a person will live their life in response to the amazing grace of God. And that begins with our text in Romans 12. The text begins with the word, therefore, which you know is a grammatical tie between what he's about to say and what he's just said. And so Paul starts with, therefore, flowing out of, reasonably, logically, this case that he has made for the amazing grace of God. Let's stand and read together. From Romans 12. Or we can look at the beautiful icebergs that I assume are in Alaska. There we go. Here we go. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice Holy and pleasing to God, this is true worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, Do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. My sisters and my brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. All right. You know, there are... <clears throat> there are a lot of nuances that, that weave their way through the book of Romans. And 
And they're challenging because Paul is, is just brilliant in his thinking and, and his usual rabbinical style is to, to pull so much of his, his teaching from the history of his people. And so oftentimes it's, it's challenging for us to understand Romans because we can't really be in his, his skin. We can't really, we can't really get inside of, of, of the mind of a first century Jewish rabbi. Not, not in the sense of, of really being there. And so sometimes the, the nuances can, can be challenging. But when Paul brings us to that, that word, therefore, he is, he's drawing us, the reader, into what I think is a personal response and also a responsibility to, to that big picture that he's painted for us. God's undeserved grace. So whether or not we clearly understand all that has gone before, which the therefore ties us to, we, we might lose sight of some of the, the blurry particulars in his arguments for making his case. Whether we get all of that, what he wants for us to understand is that God has done something outrageous and amazing. So regardless of who and, and where the reader is who reads these words, he's calling for a response with a life that demonstrates that they get it. And I think that that's why this is so good for us. We, we are living in the therefore. We're, we're those folks. Okay, so Vic, can we put that next slide up? You read these words, the encouragement to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Turn to someone and and ask them, so what comes to your mind when you hear those words? And then let them ask you the same thing. Talk about that for a couple minutes. Okay. Somebody want to uh, start us off? Give us a little feedback on what you heard from your neighbor. What came to their mind? Yes. Okay. Can you hear that in the back? Monica's remembering a song, I Surrender All to Jesus, All My Ambitions, Hopes, and Plans, comes to mind hearing those words. What else? What else do you think of? He really said that? Your, your neighbor? Golly. I just hate to think that he's right. Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. And all the delicious stuff that's inside of it, right? Yeah. That's great. That's great. What else? Any other observations or comments? (laughs) That is so true. That is so true. Yeah. Yeah, people have said that is the problem with living sacrifices. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And in some ways... That could be harder, you know? Let me just do it once, you know? One and done, I go to heaven, kind of a thing. It is, it is. And, and, and that's where we're heading. We won't, <clears throat> we won't get there today, but that, that is where we're heading. Was it Samuel? Good stuff, good stuff. You, um, you might remember if you were at Good Friday service, we, 
We spent just a little bit of time to open the service reflecting on Isaac Watts' 18th century hymn, The Wondrous Cross. And, and that old song, you might remember, remember it, it ends with these words, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Similar to, to your idea with that, that old chorus. I think that's, I think that's the description of, of what Paul is saying here. In, in view of God's mercy... People often refer to mercy as, as God not giving us what we deserve. So we could go with that for a minute. In view of God's mercy, what, what God could have done but he didn't leave us lost in sin versus what he did do but he didn't have to save us through the sacrifice of his son. So in view of God doing that, in view of his mercy, give yourself, Paul is saying, to a life that shows you understand and appreciate it. Sacrifice everything that is, that is you. And, and that's, that's really what is sort of driving, that, that's kind of the heart of, of this text. Everything that is, that is me, you know, I, I, I lay it daily on the altar. You, as a follower of Jesus, you lay it daily on the altar. I'm pretty sure it's the hardest thing that, that we ever have to do. Okay, it's the hardest thing that I ever have to do. You guys obviously have it down. But <clears throat> let me just make two or three kind of broad stroke observations that'll kind of set the, the tone, I hope, for where we want to go with this in the next few weeks. Um, Diane brought this up. In, in ancient cultures, you know, sacrifices were offered all the time. And the sacrifice obviously meant that the, if it was an animal, the animal died. Sacrifices were ultimately dead. They, they were made in ancient cultures always to gain something, to gain favor with the gods. They were, they were made to gain um, prosperity, a, a good harvest. They were, they were made in order to gain children into one's family. They were, they were made by, by soldiers and generals in order to, to gain victory in war. So a worshiper would bring an offering to gain something. They would give in order to receive. So the responsibility then for a blessed life was in the hands of the worshiper, if you will. They, they sought to bring just the right thing that would, would please or appease the gods. Offer the right thing, hopefully get the desired blessing. Do you, do you hear what Paul has done here? He has turned the tradition completely upside down, inside out. It is outrageous. It is countercultural truth that Paul is expressing here. He is saying, God has made the ultimate sacrifice for humanity to be blessed beyond imagination. God has done it. Great blessing has been given. 
without our sacrificing for that blessing. Paul is saying, live a life that demonstrates understanding of what God has done. Live, Paul says, as if it is a big deal because it is a big deal. God made the sacrifice. That's ridiculous. You won't find that in ancient literature, in other ancient religions. God made the sacrifice that humanity could not make. And so now, what Paul is saying is, live a life of sacrifice, a living sacrifice, which is holy and pleasing to God. Because that is what God desires, Paul says. And, and he adds, it's almost a, oh, and by the way, statement, this is your spiritual or reasonable act of worship. And when Paul uses the word worship there, he's talking about life and all that we live. Life's daily activity offered as worship to God. So the first big broad stroke truth that we need to keep in mind as we sort of plow ahead in these next few weeks is that what is traditional has been turned upside down. We're not living this way in order to appease God. We're not living this way in order to get something. Although I am confident that blessings in all kinds of forms abound from God when we live as if we get it. But we are living this way, called to live as sacrifices, living sacrifices, not to gain blessing, but because we have been blessed. And in fact, we don't have to do that stuff. Make sense? I think it's so important. So, so important. And, you know, here's another thing that that jumps out at me. What Paul is saying here is not just a good idea. In Paul's mind, it's the only way to live as a follower of Christ. His thinking might run along the lines of, as Christ did for me, I will now do for him. He sacrificed his life for me, therefore I will sacrifice my daily living for him in response to, in view of that great mercy. This is how I'll live my life. Now, here's, I think, the important piece of that big picture. The word that he uses, urge. It's an interesting word. You know, Paul issues a lot of commands in his letters. You know, you read the Corinthians and he's really ticked about certain things. And, and he just puts it right out there. It is imperative command language linguistically. No question about it. This is an interesting word. I urge you, brothers and sisters. Commentators wrestle with the word because it's so unique. It's, it's an important one to understand because 
It's somewhere between commanding and begging. So, it it possesses something of, of the element of authority. It's coming from Paul the Apostle. And it sort of borders on that sense of a commandment, and yet it's not truly a command. It, it has also an element of appeal. That's why some of the, the older translations use the word beseech. I beseech you. I ask of you. I beg you. So here's the other big picture piece. You don't have to do this. <laughs> You don't have to live like this. It's not a command. And, and I think it's, it's rather genius again of Paul because if Paul commands it, then what's the response going to be among many of those who are in the Roman church? Well, I've got to do it. The old guys commanded it. Paul, this is so central to Paul's theology that he doesn't want to undermine the beauty of the grace that is in the gift of God by somehow commanding that we respond a certain way to that gift. Are you with me? Paul is saying to them, you don't have to do this, but at the same time, there's the sense in the word of, why would you not do this? Do you get what God has done? Turned the whole sacrificial system upside down that we're used to. We're not doing this to gain God's blessing. He's blessed us. We do this because we're grateful for the blessing of the life that he's given us in Jesus. Why would you not do this? He doesn't want to call. He doesn't, he doesn't want obedience to, to, to a commandment to, to not be something that's coming from the heart. I, I'm just fascinated with, with that little nuance there. He wants a heart's response to what God has done for us in Christ. And the third big picture, big broad stroke piece is that I don't think there is anything harder in the Christian life than this. There just isn't. Because I don't know about you, but for me, the thing that always gets in the way of what God wants to do in my life is me. Now, sometimes I like to think that it's you or that it's my kids or that it's my wife I mean, why do you have five children so you don't have to take responsibility for anything? You know, it was, it was always the kid's fault. But unfortunately, if I'm honest, it's because there is something in me that knows better. There's something in me that fears I'm missing out. There's something in me that doesn't trust enough. So it's the hardest thing I think that any of us is ever called to do voluntarily. 
out of a heart of love, a heart's response, not a commandment. We're called to it. We're, we're begged to it by the apostle. And I, and I think that's the case because, because he knows, at least I'm suspicious that he knows that when we find ourselves falling into that pattern of life, it gives freedom like none of us has ever experienced. It is just the coolest thing to get to a point, I think I've been there once in my life, where I don't have to worry about what people think of me. That is the coolest thing in the world. They can think well, they can think ill. They can think hero, they can think goat. They can think good, they can think bad. If I'm living as a sacrifice for God on a daily basis, then it's only important what he thinks. So we'll we'll try to unearth some of those particular kinds of things that, that, that self wants to, to put up as reasons for getting off of the altar. We'll start next Sunday where Paul starts with our thinking, as Peg pointed out. Do not conform, he says. That's a command. <laughs> Do not conform to the pattern of this world be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Thinking, correct thinking, is the key to becoming, I think, a key to becoming a living sacrifice that, that is able to, to stay on the altar longer than not. You know, and there are a couple of words that will circle around for us often in this series. The words are humility and generosity because in my experience humility is always challenged by self because I want to be thought of as humble it's a little bit of a logical contradiction you know I want I want people to think that I'm generous. And yet the idea is living sacrifices by God's grace grow to a place where they're no longer thinking of generous, no longer thinking of humble. It's just happening because they're living out of a heart's love relationship with the one who was both incredibly humble and incredibly generous to us. Praise team, why don't you come on up and lead us as we respond this morning. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this marvelous truth that we talk about, this salvation by grace, this free gift of God, this this substitutionary atonement, this payment for sin, 
by the one who is sinless. <sighs> what an incredible idea. What an outrageous and absurd idea. But that is, in fact, what we ought to expect from you, O oh God, because out of your perfect character flows thoughts and actions that we can't even dream of. Thank you for that. As we move through these next few Sundays of wanting to learn more, living into Christ is risen and making that a part of our daily lives. We ask for your guidance. We ask for your wisdom. We ask that you would give us clear thinking and that the result would be glorious for you and for us as you have called us to share your glorious life. So we commit ourselves to you uh, with a little bit of fear and trembling, the possibilities of the challenges that lie ahead, but may they all be seen through that lens that Paul starts us off with in view of God's mercy. The challenges, the things that are hard, perhaps the things that your spirit uh, convicts us of those things that we might wrestle with, help us to see them all in view of your amazing mercy. We ask in the name of Jesus, amen.